Welcome to episode 23 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. I'm really excited for this episode because joining us today is Casey Liss. Casey is a developer, podcaster, and writer based out of Richmond, Virginia. He's been developing software professionally for 14 years and in an amateur capacity since long before then. Day-to-day, Casey writes an iOS app for a local company in Virginia, and in his spare time, he records the famous ATP podcast, which can be found at atp.fm, and the analog podcast on the Relay Network, as well as writing for his website, Liss is More. Casey, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking your time. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll launch right into it. So tell us about where you work and what you do. Sure. So uh, I work at a local firm, just like you said, that uh, we're a product company. Uh, We have a website and an app and I work for them. Uh, The specific work I do is about a new product that we're coming up with, which is working with hourly workers, um, people like restaurant employees and things like that. And we're developing a new app and a new product around that. And so I'm working on that brand new app and doing some greenfield development, which is really exciting. Uh, amongst the people at my office, I am the most senior iOS developer, uh, which is uh, awesome and scary all at the same time because I've only been doing iOS development anyway professionally for a couple of years now. But uh, I am the, I guess, de facto team lead uh, in a team of three where it's myself, uh, another full-time employee, uh, and a intern. Well, uh, at this point, she's probably not an intern. She's been with us for a while, but uh, she's a college student and part-time employee is, I guess, how I should describe her. And uh, we're, we're working, like I said, on greenfielding this brand new app and trying to do it in the best way possible, which has all sorts of engineering decisions that you can make when you have a blank slate with which to start writing all of your code. And a, an ever-evolving language. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Swift. I love Swift. Uh, before I wrote Swift, I was working on the Microsoft stack with uh, C Sharp, which I adored. Well, let me rephrase. I adored C Sharp. The rest of the Microsoft stack, eh, I could take it or leave it. Uh, but but I loved C Sharp, and then I, I dabbled in Objective-C on the side, and I, I quite liked Objective-C. It, it is extremely weird and extremely opinionated and by and large i do like objective c and did like objective c but i find swift to be refreshing by by comparison because objective c you know there's no two ways about it it's a what 30 year old language and it doesn't feel 30 years old but it does not feel like it is born of this era and swift absolutely feels like it's born of this era and and that i really appreciate yes we'll talk about that a little little bit later how did you start or what was your journey to becoming a professional programmer was it a school or a computer club or a hobby? How did you get started? Yeah, so I think the the, the point at which I think is genesis of, of my career is when I was real little, I want to say between five and 10 years old, closer to 10 than five. And at the time, uh, you know, my dad worked for IBM for my entire life. I mean, I think he was working somewhere else when I was born. But by the time I was a conscious human being, he was at IBM and he retired from IBM a couple of years ago. And we always had PCs in the house. And at this era, this was during, you know, the IBM DOS era, Uh, Microsoft had PC DOS, if memory serves at the same time, it was just DOS. And so uh, with DOS, if you're not familiar, you had to do a lot of things you don't have to worry about today. And you had to worry about an autoexec bat file and a config sys file and, and basically configuring the computer in such a way that it can do the things you want it to do. And then you needed to be able to figure out how to, in the command line, how to open a, a program or you know, or whatever the case may be, run a game if you're me at eight years old. And I was constantly asking my dad, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? Hey, dad, 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 how do you do this? And my dad is a very nice man. Um, I love my dad to death. Patience is not necessarily one of his strongest virtues. And so eventually, after, to his credit, me being just probably the most annoying kid in the world, dad, 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 how do you do this? Dad, how do you do that? Eventually, he actually handed me the DOS book, like the the the, the manual user's manual, yeah, and said, just just just, uh, just read this and figure it out, okay? And I don't think he really meant it, but <laughs> nevertheless, I took that book and I don't have it next to me, but I do have one a copy somewhere in the house. I actually bought it just a few years ago to have as like a memento. Um, anyways, it was like IBM DOS three point something, if memory serves, and it was this. It was an ancient version of DOS. You know, by then it was new, but it, it, it 
feels ancient now. And I read the the owner's manual or user's manual, or whatever it was called, and I read it and and I didn't understand most of it, but I read it. And fast forward a year or two and and now I'm writing like these complete batch scripts where it was like a whole menuing system with like ASCII art to do like the the border of the boxes and you know menuing and all that. And it was extremely rudimentary, but nevertheless, it was you know, kind of a kid's version of programming. Really, it was more scripting than programming, but it was in the vicinity of programming, right? And so I think to me, that's where it all got started. And then to kind of shortcut a a bunch of my personal history, I ended up meeting uh, Marco Arment when I was a little bit older than that. At this point, Windows was a thing. One of us, and we keep arguing back and forth about who it was, but one of us came up with a copy of Visual Basic 1, and we would meet up over the summers and we would write like choose your own adventure games in VB1. And our my grandmother would always yell at us and his mother would always yell at us to go outside and play in the you know grass or at the lake. And instead we would be inside on a laptop, you know, writing VB1 choose your own adventure games. Then eventually I went to school at Virginia Tech for computer engineering, which is kind of half computer science, half double, uh, half double E electrical engineering. And uh, when, after I graduated, worked a variety of jobs until I wound up here. So DOS 3.6, something or other, that was yeah. your first programming language. You yeah, think? you know, I'll have to uh, I'll have to dig up the the book, and I'll either send you a picture you can put in the show notes or something like that, or send you a link. But it was some it was some early version of IBM DOS, and I was writing batch files, and that was the closest I had to to programming. Although it was not too much later that another friend of mine wound up with a QBasic compiler. Now this was during the era that QBasic came with pretty much every version of DOS, but you couldn't make an executable out of it. You could just, you'd have to open QBasic and then open or or retype your, your particular script and then run it. But someone somehow came up with a QBasic compiler so we could actually generate exe files, executable files and run them. And that was just my mind exploded that I could make something and run it like uh, as though it was any other thing on my computer. And that was, I don't know, I was like 10 or 12 at that point. It was amazing. So the reason I asked that question about the first programming language, and I, I want to ask your professional opinion now, since you are a professional programmer, I get a lot of when I ask my students, so many of my students come to our school, with no programming experience whatsoever, nothing. Mm-hmm. And I ask them, who's, who's coded before? Who's, and uh, and uh, the few will raise their hands, and I ask them, oh, what'd you do? And inevitably, the majority of them say to me, oh, HTML. So, <laughs> Miss, Mr. List, professional programmer, HTML, is that actually a programming language? Uh, it depends on the context, right? And I, it's also very different. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm viewing this from the lens of someone who wrote HTML when I was you know, 10 or 12 or 13 or something like that. And, and at that point, it was it was much more rudimentary. Like there was no real JavaScript or if JavaScript existed, it was not really used in the capacity it is today. And so at that point, like, you know, HTML circa the late nineties, maybe like 97, 98. Eh, I don't know if that's really a programming language. It's programming adjacent, but I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say it's full on programming. That being said, you talk about a website today with all of the CSS, all the HTML, and most especially all of the JavaScript. JavaScript yeah. Now, now you're really talking about something that I would consider full on program. Okay, I was just curious for your uh, your professional opinion. That's uh, <laughs> the gentleman who taught me how to program. I went to uh, a coding boot camp with Object to C years ago. Said you know gave us the working definition. It has to compile for it to be programming. Yeah, so, I mean, I, except for PHP, a, you know, he well, said that's the, the thing, right? Like, you know, if you needed. If you needed a succinct definition, I think that's a pretty reasonable one, but it I think it implies a whole bunch of asterisks that that are not intended because you're exactly right. Like take PHP or Perl, you know, both of those can operate as scripting languages. Um, you know, bash programming. I mean, that's still programming. If you ask me, it still has, you know, control, control structures and things of that nature, but it's not pro it's not compiled so yeah i i think as a quick definition that's reasonable but it it's it i wouldn't consider that complete either so you mentioned marco arment and just for the audience uh, who may not be aware he is the creator of the um, instapaper app and now the overcast podcast playing app uh, which is my podcast player of choice and he also had something to do with this little thing called tumblr so uh <laughs> It, it, for those people who don't know, I'll put a link to uh, some of his stuff in the show notes. 
So you you work as a programmer, been working as a programmer for 14 years. What's your favorite part so I can share with my students and other teachers can share their students? Well, you know, he talked to this programmer and uh, so we can share what other professionals would like about their jobs. Oh, that's tough. You know, I think I think my my kind of cop out answer and then I'll give a better one afterwards. I think my kind of cop out answer is I like making engineering decisions. And to me, engineering is an exercise in trade-offs. And every decision I make as a developer has some sort of trade-off. And that sounds kind of depressing at first. Like, oh, I really want to do this thing, but oh, it's going to cause all these problems. Or, oh, I really want to do this thing, but oh, that's kind of a gross shortcut. And I think that the thing that keeps me interesting in programming all these years later is making those engineering decisions and deciding what is the best trade-off for this particular moment in time and this particular task that I'm working on. And I think that's that's my kind of cop-out, kind of touchy-feely answer. Um, my more concrete answer is probably when I write a piece of code and I look at it after the fact and I think to myself, wow, that is actually pretty elegant. And I'm really, really proud of it. To be fair, that only happens once or twice a year that I can look at a piece of code that I've written and not immediately hate it. But every once in a while, I can look at a piece of code and say, wow, that is really, really good. And I am really proud of myself. And that moment, it, it's it's the best. And I've never I've never taught in a professional capacity. Obviously, I've like tutored or or in or instructed or mentored is a better word I'm probably the one I'm looking for I've mentored other employees and coworkers and things but I've never taught in, in the traditional capacity but I feel like that is as close as we get to that light bulb moment that so many teachers talk about my wife taught uh, high school bio for a long time so I feel like I I understand teaching better than most for having never done it myself and and that light bulb moment is what she always told me about where oh 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 I get it and I think that this is as close as I get is, oh, wow, that piece of code isn't hot garbage. I'm pretty proud of that. You know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts about teaching programming, coding, or whatever you want to call it, iOS development, and I used to be, I taught math for 19 years previously, is we get immediate feedback. So we call it um, formative assessment when you're teaching we get immediate feedback and especially when you're teaching coding i mean we get that feedback right away cuz either it either it's going to compile and work or it doesn't so that's that's why i like about the teaching part of being a, a teacher of programming and computer science and coding i actually have real time follow up from 10 seconds ago i looked over at my bookshelf here in my office and i realized wait a second that is the dos manual i was looking for and it oh. is ibm dos version 3.3 and oh. I I think somewhere I don't know if I posted it online, but if you if I can't dig up a link for you, uh, I'll remind me and I'll I'll scan a, a picture too. But they have these like hilariously goofy illustrations about to, to to describe what a directory is and what a file is and all these other things. And they're these cutesy illustrations. Of course, now I can't find it as I'm paging through this, so maybe I'm a big liar. But once upon a time, I swear there was there were there were cutesy illustrations with like these little parakeets with like here's what a file is, and they you know open a cabinet full of file folders and pick a specific file out it's just it's hilarious and so uh it is dos 3.3 and if i can't find a link online i'll, I'll have to try to find a, one of these cutesy birds and send you a picture of it so they were like trying to give us a real world like metaphors analogies yep. kind of mm -hmm. like with the slide to open button on the first yep iphone yep, yep. Mm -hmm. because people didn't understand it and the whole fake what was that a desk calendar for the calendar and so you talk about your your, your favorite part and uh, some of those things. When was your first app published to the App Store? Do you remember the date? Because a lot uh, of people talk about. I remember mine. Yeah. So so I don't remember the exact date. Although coincidentally, I am now looking to the corner of my office. My eyes aren't good enough to see it, but I have actually printed and framed um, a picture of my god awful icon, and I'll explain in a second. A picture of the Apple email that says it's ready for sale. And a picture of my like first month sales, which amounted to all of like 10 bucks or something like that. But I wrote an app. This is when iOS 4 was brand new. So um, I will stall for time and try to look up when that was. But um, I wrote an app called, it was 2010, I was right. I wrote an app called Fast Text. And the idea was that you could set up a bunch of canned text messages and select some favorite um uh, contacts. And so in the span of just like three taps, you could open the app, 
pick one of your messages. For example, I'm on my way home. Pick who you want to send it to. For example, your your partner, and then hit send, and it would just send that message. It was it is and was the world's simplest app. It was hideous to look at. The icon was drawn by me, and it was truly utterly terrible. But this thing was all mine top to bottom, back to front, in and out. And it was on the App Store for something like four years from uh, from around the time iOS 4 shipped, uh, so late 2010 until 2013 or 2014. I think it was late 2014. And over the span of its lifetime, I think I made something like 100 or $200 off of it after you take away all the... Um, the annual $100 Apple developer account fees. And after you take away the license for the vector drawing app, I bought to do the icon. Um, and I think the only reason I ended up in the black was because we talked about it on my podcast, which has enough listeners that a lot of them bought it out of either pity or goodwill. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I remember, I vividly remember the first time I saw my app running on my own phone and it again, just blew my mind. And at this point I would, I had been a developer professionally for something like six years, but even even then, to see this on hardware, to see it on hardware that was not the hardware it was developed on, you know, everything else I was doing, it was all either server side or it was generally speaking, I was developing for the platform I was developing upon. Um, to see it on this other platform was just amazing. And I, I will never forget that moment. Yes, it's it's a great feeling, isn't it? Uh, just yeah. at, up there with the birth of, well... <laughs> my children uh yeah, yeah yeah i remember that that day vividly what tools are you using in your work as a software engineer xcode a text editor and do you have yeah. any recommendations um I, you know most of my life has lived in xcode i haven't used xcode long enough to really hate it right now i'm in a mostly love somewhat hate relationship with it uh, i came from visual studio as i alluded to before in visual studio in a lot of ways is a much better IDE, but it is, it is an assault on the eyeballs by comparison. Like Xcode, <laughs> if for all of its foibles, Xcode is very pretty in my personal opinion. And so I use Xcode for most of my work. Um, at work, we use Jira for bug tracking and reporting, and I want Jira to die in the fire of a thousand suns. I dislike Jira with all of my being, but it is what we use, so that's that. Uh, I do occasionally use TextMate. I occasionally use Solver, S-O-U-L-V-E-R, as like a quick tool for That's figuring out. It's a great out. little app. It's a great little app for figuring out different math-related things. I have become more and more into Swift Playgrounds, which is a love-hate relationship because when they work, they're fantastic. When they don't, they're infuriating. Uh, we've also been using Zeppelin, Z-E-P-L-I-N, which is a really great tool to use to interface with designers. So our designer uses, um, I think, what is it sketch i always get it wrong i always want to call it sketch but it's sketch isn't it yes something like that anyway she uses sketch to develop her designs and then she does some sort of magic and zeppelin sucks in those designs and presents them to us in a very developer friendly way such that we can see exactly what her desired gap is and points between this ui element and the next and, and, and oh this is an icon here's the asset for it and it's automatically generated in you know at 1x at 2x and at 3x right there right ready and waiting so uh, i've really come to like zeppelin quite a lot we use slack for communication slack is another thing i love hate it is wonderful but it is a total time suck uh, and we uh, use Google Apps for all the boring businessy things other than Jira. You've mentioned and you that you used to be a programmer, software engineer working in the Microsoft stack mm -hmm. in C Sharp. And because mm -hmm. you, and you've moved jobs within the last couple of years, you now work at an iOS development company and working in Swift. How did you find that move? Um, how what are your impressions of Swift now working as a Swift programmer versus C Sharp and how, yeah, do you, how do you feel about your move? I, I'm very happy with the move, if for no other reason than because I don't think my heart was really in C-sharp anymore. And again, I, I quite love C-sharp in and of itself as a programming language. And one of the most amazing things about C-sharp is that it can really kind of be all things to all people. Um, it can You can use it in any number of ways, and it, and it, and it's okay. You can be very object oriented with it. You can be very functional with it. And in fact, you can go so far as to using F sharp, which is a true, a true functional language that is very similar to C sharp. Uh, it, it can kind of do anything. 
and you can use it server side, you can use it, you know, uh, client side, you can use it for almost anything. And I love C Sharp and it was so flexible and so much cool stuff you can do with it. What's interesting to me about Swift is that, and I've said this for a long time, Swift to me is like a Rorschach test for developers, you know, the inkblot test, <laughs> in that I feel like no matter what kind of development you are used to doing and whatever language you're used to working in, you can look at Swift and say, ha that came from my language of choice. And at this point, it's been long enough that I don't even remember what my list is that of things that directly come from C Sharp, in my opinion. I'm not saying this is factual, but like, as a C, well, here's a great example. As a C Sharp developer, I looked at optionals and I was, oh, oh, those are nullables. That, I'm used to that. I know exactly what those are. And, and that's a silly example, but a good example of how it's just something familiar kind of remixed a little bit. Uh, and so the transition from C Sharp to Swift was mostly good. Uh, I think Swift is a very approachable language. Uh, Chris Latner has talked about, including we had him as a guest on our show. We were lucky enough to have him as one of our only guests on ATP. And one of the things he said then, and he has said many times before, is that um, he really tries, or Swift really tries to practice, I want to call it, 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 he said progressive disclosure, I think. I might have that not verbatim. But the, the point he was driving at was Swift is very good about being reasonably approachable, but having a lot of depth. So as you learn more and more, you get to understand more and more about the language and there are more and more tips and tricks you can use. Generally speaking, I think that's great. So something as simple as like, oh, I could use an enumeration here or, oh, enumerations have associated values. That's handy. And so you can see how this goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, I think that also has with it some some ugliness in that, you know, it, 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 at a glance, Swift doesn't seem like memory management is something you have to worry about, but in reality, you very much have to worry about it. You know, retain cycles are a thing and you have to be conscious of that as opposed to something that's garbage collected like C sharp, where yes, you can in extreme circumstances, paint yourself into a bad corner, but it takes a lot of work. You know, I never, to my recollection in my something like five or six years of doing C-sharp development, I never ran into any sort of memory leak that was my fault or, or some sort of issue like that. Whereas you could do that sort of thing in Swift. And it's not easy, but it's not terribly hard either. And so Swift, I love it. And I love that it does have this you know progressive increase in difficulty. But I think some to some degree, it hides a little of that difficulty. And if you're not willing to, to learn about it, it, it can bite you, and that's what's tough. I know as a, as a teacher, um, I, I taught myself Objective-C, and it was a very difficult learning curve. Oh, pretty, absolutely. Yeah, it was pretty steep. And there would be no way I would be attempting to teach Objective-C. But Swift, one of the things I like the most about it is that you really can get going and have success with it relatively quickly, and you and but yet you can still get really deep into it, I, you know, the episode you mentioned where you uh, interviewed Chris Latner, I think is probably one of my favorite episodes of all time of oh, ATP. Um, that's, it inspired, one of the things that inspired me to start this podcast. Um, I love his uh, saying, uh, Swift world domination. I have borrowed that <laughs> phrase. So I, I could not imagine doing this with, with other languages. Like I, I look at people who use Python to teach with, and I think, really? Hmm. Uh, oh, okay. But some of the other ones, like our, so our students as well, uh, I say our, I team teach with somebody and, and students in my program learn um, iOS app development and also game development. And they work in Unity and this, they work in C Sharp and Unity. Yeah, and I was going to say, I thought that was C Sharp. Yes. And they, they like it, but I, I think as an overall language for teaching computer science concepts to new emerging programmers swift is is does a real nice job of presenting topics and allowing me to talk about those concepts more easily than some other languages yeah it's a tough thing you know when i was in school i learned on either c or c plus plus depending on the course and neither of those languages i find to be a good teaching language but it's one of those things like oh should you learn long division or should you just embrace the fact that everywhere you go you have a calculator in your pocket <laughs> Okay, so now you're talking to a recovering math teacher. Yeah, well, exactly. We're not so, yeah, going to go exactly. down that rabbit hole. But but you see you see my point, right? Yes. And yeah. and and the problem is is that I I value that I have that basis and that I understand what a pointer is because that informs things even today. But to approach that as a as a teacher, like to start with that, that sounds just 
freaking terrible. Like I would not want to start from there. And, and Swift is so much better in that regard. And Apple's curriculum has made has made a world of difference. Um, before it came out, I wrote my own curriculum and I started teaching Swift in 2014. And I wrote some things. And you know, I'm not a computer scientist. I don't have a software background, so I did okay. But you know, there are professionals making those materials for you. Fraser Spears famously said on this podcast that, you know, a teacher would have to work really hard to screw it up. If, uh, <laughs> the teaching, all they have to do is, is follow the curriculum because it's done so well. So what has been most surprising to you in, in learning Swift and your transition to Swift? I think it, what it, it was what I alluded to earlier, that there are a lot of gotchas that aren't unreasonable, but they're 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 not obvious and in in comparison to a more primitive language like c or c plus plus and i won't say objective c so you don't get a bunch of angry feedback but compared to like a c or c plus uh, plus actually you're gonna get angry feedback from the c plus plus people so i'll just stick with c compared to a primitive language like c where you can leak pointers all over the place and, and things of that nature um it, it's less obvious when Swift goes awry, like finding or realizing you have a retain cycle and finding it and breaking it. It's, you know, Apple gives you the tools to figure that out, but it is not abundantly obvious quickly when those sorts of things happen. Additionally, the tool chain has gotten a lot better, but no honest Swift developer can talk about Swift ever without complaining and moaning about the tool chain because the tool chain is difficult. And, and what I mean by that is Xcode will often just lose uh, syntax highlighting. It'll lose uh, code completion. And it's been a lot better in the last release or two, but it was particularly bad even a year ago. And that's tough. Those sorts of things, I think, have been difficult. The other thing that's a little bit surprising about Swift is the areas in where Objective-C kind of just peeks its head and leaks through. I'm trying to think of a good example of this, and I can't off the top of my head. But there, When you have to bridge with the abject, was that at Object-C? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a good example. You know, Generally speaking, the, the, it's, the toll-free bridging is really well done, and you don't have to think about it very much. But there are times where decisions that were made in Objective-C just kind of rear their ugly heads. And not to say that they were wrong in Objective-C, but they're not the most swifty of decisions. And and so you just kind of have to roll with it. And I think that here again, you know, this is another like, why shouldn't, why shouldn't you learn long division? You know, this is a case where having come from an Objective-C background, though I never really did it professionally, I knew it well enough to, to be able to look at some of these circumstances and think, oh, okay, that's because of this Objective-C idiom that's just kind of, there's no way to code around that. It's just the way it has to be. But those sorts of things, when they happen, they're frustrating and they're unexpected. You mentioned the the Swift Playgrounds, and when they work, they're great. And I assume you're referring to Swift Playgrounds for Mac? Yeah, yeah. I've only dabbled the teeniest bit with the stuff on the iPad, and it is phenomenally good given that it's on an iPad. And I'm coming coming to this from an iPad mini perspective. I My most recent iPad in the house is the most recent iPad mini, which is not what, very like recent. 13 years old now. <laughs> so um, I don't have any iPad with like a physical keyboard or anything like that. So consider the source here. But the the brief windows of time I've, I've dabbled with, with using Playgrounds on the iPad, I've been deeply impressed. What I am talking about, to your point, is is Playgrounds on the Mac, and I find that when they are chugging along and working as I want them to, they are an invaluable tool to prototype or, you know, kind of throw something against the wall and see if it's right. But gosh, they fall on their faces so often, and it's so frustrating. So you, you've messed around with the Swift Playgrounds app, and you said you think it's interesting. What do you think your reaction would have been as a young person when, I, when I'm teaching in it, and I'm starting with 11th graders, you know, six. 16, 17 year olds who have never programmed before. And I can't believe how much it keeps their attention. You know, what do you think you would have been like looking at that for the first time as a young middle schooler or something yeah. learning programming in that? I got to imagine I would have loved it. And I haven't played with the like uh, out of the box curriculum or whatever they call it that or the the lessons that come with the with the iPad Swift playgrounds, but I've seen I've seen it demoed here and there, and I've played with it a teeny bit. And the whole thing where you like move the little character around the screen, and it's all like you know three D rendered and stuff like that. Like that is amazing, and that is about as cool as it gets without having something that's in the physical real world. And I know that Apple has been dabbling with doing things with, um, what's the little like BB eight thing. What is that called? You know, what the I'm Sphero. Talking about? Yes. Thank you. The Sphero. I, my understanding is you can, you can hook up a Sphero to like Swift playgrounds. You probably know this already, but you, you can. Yes. My students do that. 
then that's got to be the most amazing thing in the world to see. Like we were talking about earlier with me seeing my my app on a physical device. It's the same principle, right? Being able to control the real world with something you're doing in code. That's just, just astonishing, especially as a youngster. Like, oh my goodness, that's so cool. That's like the one universal theme I have. Um... In the previous episode, I interviewed a teacher from France. I've interviewed a friend of mine from uh, Junichi that teaches in Japan. And everywhere they go, it's the Spheros or the Parrot drones that they can fly in a swift playground mm -hmm. or the Lego Mindstorm robots that uh, engineering students at, at my school use. It's the connection to the physical advice device where they're getting feedback right away and they can see that they're doing something. Those kind of little quick wins are really they're getting hits students are getting hits of dopamine off of it in the brain so <laughs> it's it's it reinforces that and it makes it very powerful to teach with and i think that's one of the greatest strengths of the everyone can code curriculum is those connections to physical devices that students can have fun with and still learn at the same time yeah i couldn't agree more and that reminds me like when i was a you know elementary or middle school i played with um i think it's called capsella c a p s e l a I might have that wrong, but basically it was, it was these plastic capsules. It may or may not exist anymore, but they, each of these capsules had a different purpose. They're all physical things. Like you're building a machine, right? But there was like a motor capsule and like a drive shaft capsule. And I'm, I'm implying cars. I don't mean to, but I remember like I built a fan out of Capsella where there was like a battery capsule connected to the motor capsule connected to the fan capsule. And that in a, in a way was almost rudimentary programming. You know, you're kind of taking these building blocks and building something out of it. And then what really made me think of this was you saying Lego Mindstorms. I don't know if that's the thing that I used when I was a kid 20 years ago, but we, I used thir almost 30 years ago. God, I'm getting old. Anyway, I, I used um, something akin to Lego Mindstorms, if not Lego Mindstorms, with an old IBM PC. Well, at that point, it was brand new, but with an IBM PC to, to like control the Mindstorm. And I remember something about like making a fake washing machine where you had to do like the, the agitate cycle and then the spin cycle or something like that. And you were programming this real world device with with this computer and here again just like you said it was just unbelievably cool to, to see that happen and it, it was really a, a pivotal moment in my childhood to see these sorts of things if you get a chance eventually you may then have to get an ipad so that you can introduce your son to swift playgrounds or something because you know every father wants his son to follow in his footsteps <laughs> and uh when you're when you're ready for that let me know i'll i'll hook you up with some pointers yeah, yeah, he's only three and a half now, but I'm hopeful in the next couple of years, you know, I can start introducing something, maybe not full on, you know, development, but something along those lines, some sort of thing like, you know, building a circuit, you know, or something like that, where he, where he builds, you know, a, puts a switch with some wires with a light and he can turn the light bulb on and off, you know, something along those lines, kind of like the Capsella I was talking about, actually. Yeah, I, I'd love to see him at least explore that. And for all I know, he may hate it, but, but I want to at least expose him to it and, and see if it clicks with him. I mean, he certainly likes his Duplo and, you know, Duplo uh, Lego like blocks. And so I hope I, I, I would like to hope and think there may be an engineer in him, but who knows when you get to that point and you're ready for block based coding, the first step, the tinker app T Y N K E R is fantastic. Oh, cool. it's, it's a, it's a, it's an iOS app. And it's actually part of, they partnered with Apple and created this app. And what I love about it, and you know, I've tried to get my wife to use some of it, and the Everyone Could Code curriculum is really good about doing a lot of unplugged activities for kindergarten and first grade. And they talk about programming and as a series of get, you know, issuing commands. But what I love about Tinker is you can do the programming in blocks and tap a button and there's the actual Swift code. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and so you can have students work through it and as blocks and then go back and redo it in Swift so oh, they can almost cool. do a, like virtual learning. Yeah, it's it it almost makes me want to teach elementary. Almost. <laughs> almost. almost. <laughs> Not quite. 2 3 weeks ago on episode 265 of ATP, I thought you and John and Marco had one of the most interesting discussions I can remember outside of the Chris Latner interview and in the after show you were talking about dude working developers need to know the fundamentals and i think what it came down to was somebody had asked you know do, if you're a working programmer do you really need a computer science or computer engineering degree and i find this really interesting because some of our students are really struggling with the cost of education versus the payoff at the end should i just try and go out and become a working programmer and there's that whole 42.org movement 
out in the Silicon Valley and other places where you don't go to college. You just, it's like a super intense two year long coding boot camp almost. What are your thoughts? I, I, I mean, I thought that was a fascinating discussion. If you want to, if you could capsulize it really quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the question is just like you said, you know, do you need to have a, an, an academic background in order to be a, a, a reasonably proficient developer? And, I don't remember exactly what we concluded on the show, but I believe we concluded that, no, it's not really necessary. And I, I am very thankful for my formal education. And like I said earlier in the program, it was kind of half computer science, half electrical engineering. And and I, I think that does make me a better developer and it helps me to understand things that I may not understand otherwise. As I said earlier, something like a pointer, like that you probably don't need to know what, the, what a pointer is in order to understand Swift, but it does help to understand what a pointer is in order to understand Swift. So do you really need to understand what a pointer is? Do you really need that academic background? No, I don't, I don't think you do. I view my education as giving me the bare minimum of essential tools in order to function as a, dev, as a junior developer when I graduated. And even that is a bit of a stretch in some ways because I had never used source control before I got my first big boy job. I didn't really know what it was. I should have like, and I'm sure at my alma mater today, they probably do teach all about source control and any, any reasonably uh, proficient, even amateur developer is going to know about Git and GitHub and things of that nature. But at the time, like they didn't have a need to teach that. And so they didn't, it ended up that I learned I, I, you could almost say that my first job was my real college education because that taught me how to work with a team of professionals. You know, of course, I had team projects when I was in school, but that was a bunch, you know, it was the blind leading the blind, right? Whereas now I, I would have to actually be a productive member of a team. And there's so much learning that comes from that. So, you know, college is a great way. I'll use the word shortcut, but I probably don't mean shortcut, but it's a great way to shortcut to having a document that shows you know what you're doing and if you don't have a college education it can be harder to prove that you know you might need to have a decent github profile or need to have some open source either contributions or projects or something like that but the point i'm trying to meander toward is that i do not consider a college education or equivalent knowledge of the fundamentals to be compulsory just to be a working developer i really you just need experience in the particular well you don't even need experience in that particular platform but you need experience in a platform preferably the particular platform you're trying to find a job in so if you're looking to become a swift developer full-time it is preferable to have swift experience even if it's just a stupid app like fast text it's something and and getting something and that's the other nice thing about ios development is that you'll get or in that could be on the Mac as well, Mac development, getting a, an app into either the Mac app store. That's still a thing, right? Getting, yeah. a, uh, getting a Mac, getting an app into the Mac app store, if it's really around or the iOS app store, that is sort of kind of like having a college degree because you have proven that you have accomplished a thing and you have done it either on your own or with a team of a couple other people. And so you could consider that almost a shortcut to the same end, which is I have a I have a thing that I can point to that shows I know what I'm doing, at least a little bit. I really struggle with this because I teach at a career tech high school and our students typically don't like school. Um, most of the students from my program, many of them do go on to college to study computer science or uh, I don't know if we've had any computer engineering students. I struggle with that. You know, what recommendation when they're asking is like college is so expensive and this part of Ohio is has been depressed for a long time. Wages aren't super high and that's a lot of debt to take on. So but the one thing I that you said that it really struck home to me was the whole idea of do you really need to know what a pointer is? And not having a computer science background myself, I mean I had to go out and and actually learn that and figure out, well, okay, so this is why Apple, maybe one of the reasons why Apple was making its decision by adding optionals into Swift is so we don't have any of those null pointer crashes like you can have in Objective-C. That's a point well made. And I thought uh, John Syracuse it made a good point about how you know, when you're studying computer engineering, computer science, you get to learn about memory management and all those things. So you can look at your app and take a look at where it may be bleeding memory or something. And that might be really useful as well. So, yeah, but I mean, to extend that a little further, I understand what big O notation is, but 
any even reasonably decent developer can look at a function and say, wow, that seems really inefficient. And, you know, maybe a, a, an educated, you know, a formally educated uh, developer might be able to say, you know, oh, that's that's an OH comma. <laughs> oh, that's an ON squared, you know, algorithm or something along those lines. You know, that's really inefficient, whereas we can make that linear by doing this out of the other thing. And maybe a a pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of developer will just look at you like, what? But we're both saying the same thing. Just one of us, you know, is using, you know, ridiculous math terms. And one of us is just saying, wow, that looks really slow. But you, you, you don't need to understand big O notation in order to understand that that algorithm is really slow. Yes, I agree. But it with so much of the machine learning and AI that's coming through, and those are yeah. all algorithmic based and algorithmic learning. So... I don't know. I also, my students just roll their eyes when I talk about how great math is and how important it is. And they're like, oh, come on. <laughs> so speaking of all the math and the, the algorithms and everything, you um, have become a big proponent of reactive Swift. Mm -hmm. So most of my teachers probably have no idea that the listen, have no idea what that is. And I know you're a big fan. Why don't you give us a little summary of what reactive swift is because i've read your articles they're well written i'll Thank put you. links in the show notes i was able to follow it and uh, i might modify and redo our first project we do in my app development with swift class for my seniors we make a little flashlight app with a button i think this is something that could be easily modified to do again with reactive swift just to give my students a little taste yeah, yeah, and in my classic example for teaching uh, RX Swift is, is I call it Doorgate, and basically what that it's a completely con contrived example. And imagine a room where there's a the, the the door is a gate, and it's a magical gate that only allows two people in the room. And once two people have entered the room, it locks itself. And once you know one of those people leaves, it unlocks itself uh, so that you know another person can come in. It is the most contrived, silly example in the world, but it's a really great way to kind of illustrate the concepts of RX Swift. So, what what is RX Swift? So, reactive programming. This is very different, mind you, than than React Native. There are very there are several different projects all using the word React in some capacity or another, which makes this a very difficult conversation to have. Um, React Native is using web technologies to to make native apps and that is not what i'm talking about rx swift is is reactive functional reactive programming and it's an offshoot or kind of a port of what happened in net a few years ago and and the the canonical implementation of rx comes from from c sharp and net there's a really, really incredible video, uh, especially if you're a math nerd, <clears throat> where uh, I believe his name is Eric Meiser and Brian Beckman, I believe are the two people that talk about the math side of reactive programming for like 45 minutes. And to be completely candid, that flew right over my head. But something like 45 minutes into the video, they talk about what reactive programming is really about. And to me, if you think about in an average environment and this is a little bit different with ios because ios isn't exactly like this but in, a mo in many average environments if you need to figure out if something has happened you often need to ask that thing so you need to ask an api hey is there something new hey is there something new hey is there something new and you need to do that over and over and over again you kind of have to pull for updates and what reactive programming does is it says you know what Pretty much everything we write nowadays is inherently asynchronous, be that a network request, be that a user interface, no matter what it is, it's going to be asynchronous. So let's just embrace that and run with it. So let's turn everything on its head and let's treat everything like a stream of events. So take, for example, a user interface. Maybe you have a button on that user interface. Well, that button emits one or more button presses over the lifetime of that button. So every time the user pushes the button, that's another event on this stream. Well, these streams, you can think of, if you want to go back to the math side of things, it's kind of like flipping innumerables on their head. So if you think about, and in Swift, you would sort of kind of know this as a sequence. It's similar, but not exactly the same. So in C Sharp, an innumerable is basically anything that you can say, is what is my current item what is, and what is my next item or moved i should say move to the next item so think of you know enumerating through a list you start 
with the very first item, you move to the next one, or maybe you start with the one before. It doesn't matter. You get the idea. You start with the first item or thereabouts, and then you move to the next item until you eventually run off the end of the list. Well, what RX does is it flips that on its head and says, hey, we're just going to kind of push these items into you. We're going to push these events onto you. So what, and, and this is really, really, really well covered in that video I mentioned earlier. I'll, I'll make sure that, that you have a, uh, have a link for the show notes, Brian. But what this really means in, in behavior, even if you didn't understand any of the stuff I'm just talking about, the summary is that if you treat everything in your app like a stream of data, be that a button press, be that a scroll event, be that a table view selection, be that a UI switch flipping, be that a network call. If you treat all of them like individual streams of data, you can then compose multiple streams together and combine multiple streams together and do things with them like map. You know, you can map just like you can a Swift array and you put these together and transform them and use various operations on them in order to really elegantly and really simply model a system. So the canonical example of where RX Swift is amazing is if you have, say, a search box and that search box, you need to make a network request every time the user types a new thing. So maybe you're searching for a product in a online store. And so every time you type something like, you know, uh, I don't know, B-O-O-K for book, well, when you type the letter B, you fire off a network request to get the things that match B. Then you type B, you know, you type the letter O, so now the string is B-O. You fire off a new network request for B-O to see what things come back. Maybe you get deodorant or something like that. Then you type B-O-O, then you get things for ghosts and things like that. Finally, you get to B-O-O-K, and the network request comes back, and it's for books. Well, what you can do with Rx is you can say, hey, I want to take the things that the user enters in this late, in this uh, text field, which is itself a stream. I want to, and I always get this wrong, I believe it's a debounce. I want to debounce it, which is to say, if, they, if they're typing really quickly, just ignore it and don't pass an event along until, it's, until they've stopped typing for some, some amount of time that you specify, say like a third of a second. And then I want to convert that that phrase maybe that string that b-o-o-k i want to map that into a request for my networking stack and then what comes back i want to flat map into some other thing and eventually put you know a whole bunch of data on screen and so again this is very hard to do verbally but the idea is you take these streams of events and you combine them and cut them up and combine them again in a different way and you can really do unbelievably cool things with unbelievably small amounts of code and it's really really cool and one of the best parts about rx swift is that if you use it right it is extremely good at eliminating state from your from your apps and if you think about it most bugs not necessarily like crashes but you know odd behavior kind of bugs are because something some state has gotten out of whack maybe there's a switch on your user interface that's flipped true or on but your internal state in your app thinks that it's off or false. That's a bug because something's gotten out of whack. And what RX Swift is really great at, if you use it smartly, is getting rid of that state. So there is no state to get out of whack. It's all just, it's all just events. It's all just moving things around as events. And that probably wasn't the best sales pitch I've ever made in my entire life. But if nothing else, if you're if that even slightly piques your interest, I would recommend either watching that video with Beckman and Meiser, uh, or and or looking at my um, I believe I called it uh, Swift Primer or excuse me RX Swift Primer series that I wrote at the end of 2016 on my website. Uh, it's it's five posts. They're not terribly long. It takes the world's most boring app, which is just a click counter and converts it from traditional imperative programming to RX Swift over the span of a few apps or excuse me, a few blog posts. And if that doesn't at least slightly intrigue you, then then there's nothing I can do from here. It's well written and I, under, I understood it as a very, very junior developer. So uh, take a look at it, teachers out there and, and, you know, maybe for some kind of bonus material or something you may want to add if you have, because we all have so much free time uh, <laughs> built Especially into our Especially teachers. Yeah. So, uh, well, even in the school year and, and what we can teach. So, but it, it could make for an interesting, if you have a really, really, like I have a really advanced student that I think next year is, I'm going to say, Hey, why don't you check this out? So to get him ready for college. It's, it's very, 
it's very weird and very unusual, and it takes everything you know and flips it all in its head. But if you can see the matrix, if you will, you know, if you can see what what the all those weird green letters represent, then it changes your world. And I, and I was actually just talking to somebody about this earlier today, uh, a, a developer from another company who is also dabbling with RX Swift, and and he was saying to me in so many words, you know, how do people write apps without this now? Like, wh- why would anyone choose not to use this? And and it's one of those things you become one of those people once you really understand it, once you really see the matrix, if you will, y- you just can't go back. Like, I- I've been working on a personal app, something. Uh, probably even less interesting than fast text, but it's scratching an itch that I have. And I've written it all in RX Swift because I can't imagine not doing it that way. For your photos. And no, actually, no. Th- well, that one was was something else. That is, uh, that is not RX Swift because there's nothing terribly asynchronous about it in the grand scheme of things. No, I'm working on an iOS app to scratch a very small itch of mine. Um, and so anyway, that's all, that's all uh, RX Swift. Where can people find you and your work online? Uh, you actually covered this pretty well at the beginning of the, uh, the beginning of the show. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Casey Liss. That's C A S E Y L I S S. Additionally, you can find me on the web at CaseyLiss.com. And then my uh, two podcasts are ATP, which is the Accidental Tech Podcast with my friends Marco Arment of Tumblr fame and John Syracuse of Ars Technica OS 10 Review fame. Um, that you can find at ATP.fm. And then additionally, I have a show uh, called Analog with my my good friend Mike Hurley. That's on the Relay FM networks. So that's relay.fm slash analog. Analog is ostensibly about the kind of touchy-feely side of all of our digital devices, but has somehow morphed into kind of a human interest show about the two of us, which is extremely self-centered to say, but if I'm honest and call a spade a spade, that's kind of what it's become. Uh, but it's a lot of fun to do, and, and we don't have that many people that listen to it, but those who do tend to like it. So you might want to check that out as well. If you'd like to find the show notes for today's episode, you can find them over at swiftteacher.org slash podcast. And I hope that you'll consider joining us in the Swift Teacher Slack team. There will be a sign up link in the show notes, or you can go to just swiftteacher.me and that'll redirect you to the Slack sign up. If you have a question, we have lots of good discussion in there and you can ask a question and it gets answered reasonably quickly. Uh, So pro teaching tip that uh, Casey and I talked about, if you can connect anything that you do when you're teaching to a robot or a drone or whatever, your students' eyes will light up. It doesn't matter if they're middle school, elementary, or even those jaded, crusty old high school students. Uh, they will become little kids again, and you will be have a lot of success in your classroom. Well, Casey, thank you so much for giving me some of your time and uh, talking with us. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. And, and you know, I, I, I know I'm kind of blowing smoke, but I really mean it. Having been married to a teacher of eight or 10 years, I forget how long she taught. Uh, I don't know how any of you do it. And, and it, especially in America anyway, it is arguably the most important job in, in the world, in the country, if you will. And, and we value teachers basically not at all. And, and I try to talk about this whenever possible on my website and on Twitter and occasionally on podcasts. But uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all of the teachers out there because I would not be doing this right now were it not for all of the great teachers I had. And I don't know how you you men and women stick with it. I don't know how you do it. I would not last but five seconds as a teacher, but but there are people out there that appreciate you and and I am one of them. So thank you so much for, for all of the things that all of you do. And thank you, especially Brian, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the kind words. It's uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you as well. Thank you, sir. Time to get Swifty. 